Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Ride on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Ride on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Ride on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This week's show is brought to you by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. When disaster strikes at the Oscars, we'll address it in a good week or two. You know, Donald Trump was a perfect president for satirists. Can anyone really deny that? Now, comics took all that raw material and ran wild with it, using satire, like they often do, as a political cudgel. The talking points soon outpace the funny. We call it clapter. And it's kind of the death knell of comedy, but I think you know that already. By the end of Trump's term, though, the whole idea of more Trump jokes made me nauseous. The orange skin, those tiny hands, Russian collusion, Hitler 2.0. Prop comics weren't that hacky, is what we were hearing. With apologies to Carrot Top, he's top of the line. But comedians really haven't found a replacement for Trump yet. He's still the brunt of a lot of jokes on the late-night scene, certainly Saturday Night Live isn't letting go. And yet the answer, the solution to the problem, is staring them right in the face. Vice President Kamala Harris is a late-night host's dream. She's got that cackle that's tailor-made for impressionists. I mean, anyone can do it. Maybe some can do it better than others, but that's... That's a calling card. And her word salad style is just unbelievable. It could launch a thousand monologues. But not yet. Maybe not ever. Here's just one sample of Harris's wit, wisdom, and ability to cut to the chase on the podium. It's amazing. We also recognize, just as it has been in the United States for Jamaica, one of the issues that has been presented as an issue that is economic in the way of its impact has been the pandemic. So to that end, we are announcing today also that we will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen not only uh, the, the, the issue of public health, but also the economy. There's more where that came from, a lot more. So where are the jokes? Remember when Dan Quayle misspelled potato? Actually, I think that the note he was given misspelled it too, but it's on the school's, <laughs> the school's my bad moment and also his my bad moment, which of course now lives in infamy. Comedians wouldn't let him have it. After that, comedians just pummeled him week after week, month after month. And that's okay. That's what comedians are supposed to do. Bring the mighty down to size. Captains of industry, A-list stars, Kardashians. Sometimes even presidents. Now, if memory serves, Colbert and co. made some hay with VP Mike Pence and the fact that he was not willing to be alone with a woman who wasn't his wife. It's like hanging a raw steak in front of one of those Joe Exotic cats. You just got to stand back. But now we have a vice president with lousy polling numbers, a crazed cackle, and the political instincts of a damn sponge. I think Hillary Clinton laughs at her. But that's not all. That word salad is just top of the line. Can't get anything better than that. I mean, you've got a person who can use dozens and dozens of syllables to say absolutely nothing. So where are the jokes? Saturday Night Live sketches. The recurring late night routine speaking truth to power about the second most powerful woman on the planet. Well, you can squint. You can look around. You could do a Google search. You're not going to find them that much, any. 
That's the sad state of comedy in 2022. Politics again comes before the laughter. And of course, late night TV and Saturday Night Live, sort of the institutions of comedy, they're just really part of one political party. And you don't need three guesses to figure out which one I'm talking about. At this point, given all that she's done already in just one year, I really don't know what Harris would have to do to get Colbert's attention these days. Of course, there is one possible solution here. Greg Gutfeld, he's on Fox News. He's not holding back. He leans to the right, of course, so he has no problem poking fun of Harris. He is the exception to the comedy rule these days. Now, President Joe Biden's polling numbers have fallen, and they're not getting up. Harris is their plan B. And I don't think anybody wants that scenario. But uh, so how about it, Jimmy Kimmel? What do you say, Seth Meyers? You want to break precedent and start finding the funny in a deeply flawed vice president? Or nah, not really. Well, keep it up. Keep ignoring her. And Gutfeld and probably some late night comics who are online, not on TV, they're going to keep eating your lunch. You're listening to my dad's podcast. He cried like a baby watching Snoopy come home. This week's Toto's take is The Woman in Red. Kelly LeBrock held a unique title in Hollywood back in the 80s. She was our go-to dream girl. She was a model-turned-actress, pretty good actress, by the way, considering her roots, and uh, she played that part quite well in Weird Science back in 1985, the John Hughes comedy. But she did it again a year earlier, sort of the personification of beauty, that unattainable, gorgeous woman that men dream of and can never, never quite ask them out, if not get on an actual date. And she plays the woman that Gene Wilder cannot get out of his head. Now, yes, this is a sex comedy, and Wilder's character is married to a sweet, attractive woman, played by Judith Ivey, and he can't wait to cheat on her. One look at LeBrock's character, and he's dumbstruck. And we get it, at least if you're a guy. But can he actually woo her? Or will his co-worker, played by Gilda Radner, end him before he gets the chance? They have some very funny scenes together. The fact that Wilder and Radner were an off-screen couple makes their bickering on-screen even better. Now, this is pretty light stuff, no question, but the casting is just perfect, right down to Charles Grodin. Boy, do we miss Charles Grodin. He plays one of the uh, female-chasing buddies that his, uh, the main character hangs around with. And what guy can't relate to the thought of chasing the girl of your dreams, even if it might ruin everything? Now, most of us never, ever do that. We don't go through with it. It's a thought in our mind, and we just push it aside, but... Those impulses are part of the dude DNA. It's just the curse of being a guy. And the film really leans into that in a smart way, besides the fact that it's pretty funny. And I like the fact that watching it now, I'd forgotten this, that Groden's character has a pretty curious secret for an 80s film, and it really plays into the whole concept of what, what guys will do to follow their libido, and sometimes they, they make a mess of their lives. Now, I don't think The Woman in Red was a huge hit back in the day. And of course, if it came out today, there'd be lots of scrutiny about it, from the male gaze to white privilege, you name it. But it's the 80s. We can see it. We can enjoy it all for itself. Now, there's something about a sex comedy with one of Hollywood's funniest actors, though, and Gene Wilder certainly qualifies. It just makes it irresistible. He's got a certain energy. He brings it here. He actually wrote and directed the film, so he knows his strengths, and he just leans heavily into it. And what I had forgotten as well is that this has got an amazing soundtrack from Stevie Wonder, including I Just Called to Say I Love You. Pretty big hit. It's a complete package of a film. And, of course, the overlords at Amazon Prime just added it to their roster. What a perfect excuse to relive it all over again. There are some pundits out there I follow aggressively. Think about Kira Davis, Carol Markowitz, Joe Concha, uh, John Nolte's amazing. Kyle Smith is among the best of the best. And also Lou Aguilar. Now, Lou writes for the American Spectator, but he's also a screenwriter and a novelist. He wrote a very good, very sly newspaper romance called Paper Tigers back in the day. You'll find out more about that soon. So I invited Lou on the show. I want to talk a little bit about movies and pop culture, but I also know he was behind the scenes, not just as a journalist for a while, but also as a Hollywood screenwriter. Now, anything Lou says is always worth a listen. He's got a great perspective on things, but his behind-the-scenes stories about making B-list movies and trying to make A-list movies as well is really funny and a little scary. Great perspective on Hollywood and La La Land. So 
Hope you enjoy my conversation with Lou. Lou, let's start at the beginning literally. I, I, I know just a, a kind of a snapshot of the fact that you were born in Cuba and lived there when you were very young and then your family moved yes. to America. But I want to share more about that journey. I, I've heard similar tales. I, I think we don't appreciate the, 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 the heroism of, of kind of escaping a country like Cuba, especially when you've got family members in tow. Uh, just kind of give us a little bit about that and, and how you got here. I mean, I was six years old, too young to be a hero. Now I'm too old to be one. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but but uh, my dad was kind of like a hero. Like uh, all those guys knew Castro from Catholic school. You mm-hmm. know, uh, um, Belen was the Jesuit school that they all attended. And so they were kind of friends. Like all the intellectuals at the time, they were kind of pro-Castro because Batista was so bad. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the, the devil, you know, that old saying, the devil, you know, is, <laughs> is better than the devil you don't. So they were pro Castro and then Castro, you know, a lot of people knock him. A lot of people knock, uh, you know, make fun of Trudeau as being Castro's son. The difference is you know, Castro is, was a murderous bastard, but he was also a, a real man. And he walked the walk and he was in the hills actually fighting the Cuban army, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, so everybody supported him. And then he took power and my dad said, okay, well, uh, good. When are we going to start all this beautiful stuff? He says, well, the, the first thing I'm going to do is shut down the newspapers. <laughs> and dad went, wait a minute. I write for the newspaper. Goes, uh-huh. Yeah. And if you don't like it, you're in trouble, you know? So things got really ugly real fast. Yeah. And finally with, with my dad under threat, he just said, I'm, you know, back then you could still, you didn't have to escape on a raft. You could still get on a plane. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that, we did, and I, we got to uh, first Miami, but then Washington, D.C., which is where mm-hmm. I grew up. My dad became a Georgetown professor, very prestigious uh, uh, scholar about uh, Latin America and Cuba and socialism. And, uh, you know, I became a – I went to University of Maryland, and I became a, a journalist. I went to Channel 5, uh, 10 o'clock news, then the Washington Post, then USA Today. And then I just – at some point, I just got tired of, at USA Today, I just got tired. It, it, I mean, I did the, the Washington Times just like you did, too, uh, as a TV critic for about six months. That, that was fun. <laughs> and uh, then I just, I just said, you know, I, I want to write this stuff. I don't want to write about it. Gotcha. So I, I went to Hollywood, and, and uh, I was there for 10 years writing pretty much. I was trying to write. I was writing A scripts, but the ones I was selling – were the straight-to-video ones. <laughs> well, before we get to your Hollywood story, which I want to definitely dig into, your dad was a journalist, you were a journalist. And I yes. know that we're living in an age where media bias is is off the charts, it's beyond parody. Just throw in your adjective, it's not strong enough. What did you see as someone working in journalists in a more sober time? But I would also imagine the bias was still there, but certainly not as cartoonish as we see. Oh. From As someone in the trenches, what did you see? That's a good question. Thank you for asking it. I was at the Washington Post, which is the belly of the beast, which I wrote about in my in my novel. But um, yeah, I, I was. But it was it was this was like the late '80s, early '90s, and you know, and I was just a kid. It wasn't so bad. It, it it wasn't so bad in that Bob Woodward. Well, he's still there, but you pretty much had to follow the rules of two sources and. Mm-hmm. You know, less proper, much more subtle, hidden propaganda than there is now. And uh, and the uh, editorials. I mean, Reagan was president, basically Reagan and 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 Bush, and they they couldn't get away with that as much as they did now. And it, but I remember people my age when I we were there for the Bush uh, versus no, excuse me, the second Reagan. The second Reagan election versus Mondale, mm-hmm. and I remember kids like me going. We knew that Reagan was going to crush it, so I remember kids like me saying, uh, "Well, I'm going to watch. I'm, you know, I'm going to be working during the wake tonight." Uh, and I remember being struck the wake, you know, <laughs> that Mondale <laughs> was going to lose, and and that's as far as it went. I mean, yeah. it, all, all all the writers back then were much better. They they were liberal, but they were classic liberals yeah and they were striving for fairness too it sounds like yes now were were you a a right of center person at that time or were you very politically active i I became i became a right of 
I, I was always a conservative. Now, when I was a kid, Vietnam was, you know, was, was raging. And I, in my naivete, I would say, why don't we just win this thing? You know? <laughs> that's, about, that's about as far as it went. Uh-huh. What changed me, Chris, was helping to cover Reagan's uh, election, election night at the uh, Republican National Headquarters, where I was just there helping the reporter. I was just like a young intern helping the reporter. And uh, I saw that everyone was gearing up for a long slog and night. And I saw, and they had a big map, and I saw that map go red in about half an hour. Mm-hmm. And people screaming, you know, every state by state, states that they couldn't believe they would get, just ping, ping, ping. And, and people like screaming and shock and delight. And, and the electricity, I, I've, I've never felt a moment like that. And that's where I said, yeah, this is, this is me, mm-hmm. and this is where I want to be. And this is the night that kicked it all off. Now, you mentioned you went from being a journalist to a screenwriter in Hollywood. I'm sure right. there are a million stories to tell. When you think back at that decade of your life, what, what are the sharpest memories? What are the, what, what, what's inescapable about that, that chapter in your career? You know, I was kind of a cocky bastard. And uh, early on, like in two years, two years in, I, I had a deal with Corman, which, which, you know, I didn't know how hard it was, right? I just, you, they were doing the, sci, the, the sci-fi sexy, sci-fi horror sexy stuff, which is right up my alley. <laughs> the problem was it was a trap. It wasn't really a career, a, a ladder. It was kind of a trap. Once you're in that zone, you, you know, you're not going to be Tarantino or, or <laughs> one of those other. I didn't know that. I, I was, as I said, and this I was, is Roger Corman, the famous indie producer, sort of super shoestring budgets and, and kind of genre films and things like that. Right. Because it was, it, it's funny, as you well know, there was a whole sub layer to the industry that existed back then that disappeared. Like by, by the time the internet exploded, that, straight to video blockbuster stuff was gone. I mean, mm-hmm. just vanished almost overnight. Well, you and know, what? so I, and, Go and I couldn't make the leap into the A stuff because, you know, because I was a, I was known as a B guy. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, that, that's Hollywood, but, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Bob Denver not being able to get as much work because all of a sudden he's Gilligan, they typecast you right. and uh, it can be hard to kind of shake that away. There, there was just no connection between the, you know, the Shannon Steve stuff, the Shannon Tweed stuff, mm-hmm. and the Angelina Jolie stuff. You, just, <laughs> you couldn't get, you can get there, you know. When you look back at that that chapter in your career, what are you proud of, or what are you going to look back and say, you know, listen, it, it you know, I, I didn't end up winning an Oscar for screenwriting, but there, that was fun, or that was something I can kind of take away with pride, or I didn't sell my soul. What, what, what sort of your sort of the, the lesson of that time in your life? What's funny is. Hollywood, the business was not anywhere near as dark and edgy and gloomy and politically woke as it is now. I mean, not they they were liberal, but it's but it's not, you know, it, it was nothing like today. Nothing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you could still make a romantic comedy, for instance. I, I wrote one that, that uh um she was still she was still kind of in demand. Uh Sean Young wanted to do a, mm. a, a romantic comedy, and you know, again, another thing that that never went. But, but you, you know, you could still write that stuff. You didn't have to worry about how many gay people I'm going to have, ten percent black people. You know, you, none of that. It w- wasn't even a factor. It was just and, writing uh, stories, and if they worked, they worked, and if they didn't, they didn't. Right. One thing I remember is this real, this real pretty girl. And there were, you know, I lived in Venice Beach. This little pretty girl that I met through a friend, and and I thought, oh, actress, you know, because, and she, and she goes, no, I I, I want to be a I want to be a writer, and I have this idea. My hometown, Erie, Colorado, just ran a dog for mayor, <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, okay. And she goes, well, do you think she knew? You know, she knew I'd already I was writing those things. She says, do you think that's something that maybe Disney or somebody like that would be interested in. And of course, I was just looking at her and I, and I said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, no, the studios would jump at that. And in uh. fact, I can help you write that, you know. And so she, she became my girlfriend. But the point is, her story was Jake for mayor. 
which became my first novel, but I wrote it as a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And again, Christine, every, it seemed like everybody wanted to do it. That would have been my jump from, from the B's to like at least a, a, a good A or indie, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it, 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 did, it didn't go, but I used that and I used the, uh, th then, then at, at the very end, this would be about, but then my old script for Paper Tigers about my days at the Washington Post became super hot. Now, this is interesting because I left, I left Hollywood in 2004. And in 2008, the Paper Tiger script became hot. Uh, ICM represented it. And they called me and, and they sent me to every studio in town, every door, places that I couldn't have gotten in before without a broom mm -hmm. to clean up. They just, the guys arranged meetings with Ron Howard and uh, Star Trek people and all those guys. So this was, this, this was the change. So I went back to Hollywood for all these meetings in 2008. And, uh, and, I, and I went to all these meetings. Now remember, 2008, summer. And at one of them, I was talking to Paper Tigers, as you know, we, we, we discussed it, is, is got a very strong political angle. It's about a conservative young man and a super liberal feminist fatal, I call her. <laughs> and, and so it was a political event. So I'm at a meeting with this woman producer at, I can't remember which, which one it was. I think it was Paramount. And she says, hey, you know, I love your script. Yeah, let's see if we can do it. But, but tell me something. This, again, summer, August 2008, was, you know, she says, in total fear. You're, you know, you're obviously politically attuned. Tell me, is there a chance that McCain might win? <laughs> dun, dun, and, I, dun. and I, like an idiot, go, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, Lou. <laughs> you should have known better. <laughs> Sometimes you can't help yourself, right? Yeah, well, as, as Andrew... As Andrew Clavin said in the forward of your book, you know, before before I could say, you know, Paramount Studios, I was outside the door. You know? uh, oh but, my! Well, so you know, I learned. You know, yeah. that was the beginning. That was the beginning of. I mean, it was always kind of like that, but but and it just got much worse. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so so the script for Paper Tigers died on that day. Well, let me ask you, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a, a bubbling up of right-of-center producers right now. You know, Phelan McAleer is always doing something interesting in KG, just what he does. And the Daily Wire, they're, they're going Hollywood. And, and I suspect there are other maybe movements afoot as well. Would you want to revisit your screenwriting career and maybe dust off some of these things that were, were legitimately good, just that didn't get the chance they deserved? Or do you think you've kind of moved on career-wise? No, no. <laughs> Nobody moves on from the, light, the lights and the glam, Christian. Uh -huh. It's always there, <laughs> showbiz. No, as a matter of fact, I, I'm still screenwriting, and uh, and a script of mine is at Daily Wire right oh, now. Oh, look at that. Okay. And, uh, and in fact, it's Paper Tigers. Okay. Well, great. And, hey. and uh, they reviewed it. They reviewed it like when it first came out, and mm. they gave it a glowing review. And now the script is there, and uh, Dallas liked it. He, he's the one who gave it to me. Yep, that's Dallas Sonia, the great producer who's working hand-in-hand yeah, hand with The Daily Wire. You know, I, this is something that I ask people from time to time about Hollywood, because I think we hear a lot of horror stories, and I think there are a lot of horror stories, and Woke is a separate horror story. But can you maybe share a moment in Hollywood of kindness where maybe someone was decent to you or helped you or, or gave you did a favor for you in a way that was – memorable because I you know I, I asked this of an actor one time and he had a great story about Kevin Costner and how he was struggling I think I think he had maybe some sort of throat condition and the movie the studio wanted to kind of get rid of him and Kevin Costner was working with him and said hey no I'm gonna fight for you we're gonna we're gonna make this happen I believe it was the um, it was the, it was a JFK theme film not not the JFK with Oliver Stone but another one but anyway do you have any stories like that where just someone was kind and decent in Hollywood because I, I I like to kind of cut across the grain sometimes and I'm as you know, and, and you that's, are as well, we're both critical excellent. of this industry. There are a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. There are a, lo a lot of nice people. You know, I, I, I was a reader for a while. And, uh, you know, just people uh, re really, really helping your career. 
I, I remember the cool the, the coolest guy I met out there was uh, Gordon Dawson, who's still alive, but he was the showrunner for Walker Texas Ranger, mm-hmm. and uh, he you know he just he liked the script of mine and he called me in, and uh, it, it was just. Yeah, I mean, no, nobody saved my life or anything like that. But, but there, there were a lot of good people, mm-hmm. mostly, mostly older ones. Uh, I'm, I, I, am not so no longer connected with the young ones, but I was. And uh, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to answer. I knew a lot of actors and actresses and and uh, producers and oh, you know, and I've had agents that were super nice. Yeah, that were doing their best to help me. Well, you mentioned the, like the older folks, obviously. maybe because they had kind of been through the mill and they kind of realized how brutal the industry was. Maybe they were kind of more willing to kind of lend a hand. Is that what I'm sensing? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. There were always creeps and jerks and perverts, mm-hmm. and there were always good people. Yeah. Uh, what, what can I say? I mean, Schwarzenegger was, was very nice to me, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and Maria Shriver, <laughs> which is probably why they broke up. No. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have any specific stories. Of, okay. No, it's, it's good to know that there's decency in, in any realm, even the bowels but, but, of Hollywood. I had really good friends that I thought, you know, friends for life, mm-hmm. but they turned out not to be because of, you know, because of politics. And, yeah. So did, uh, when you were, which, 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 besides, I've never, I've never encountered, I've never encountered such a thing only, only there. When you say such a thing, sort of being discriminated against for for politics, but no, not discriminated against. Friends that you made oh, okay. actually stopped being friends. Gotcha. That that had never happened ever. Yeah. Now you and I both cover the woke situation in Hollywood. I wrote a book about it. You do yeah, some great need... columns at the American Spectator. Thank the you. question I'm often asked is like, when did this begin? What you know? What? How did this all come to be? And I, I struggle oh. with that because I think it's a I think it's a slow roll. I think it's a piece by piece, and I think it's also yes. part of the culture at large. But how would you answer that? Are there specific kind of maybe? Well, I, I told moments? you the difference between leaving in two thousand four and going back in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Well, Lou, I, so, I want to end on what I hope is an optimistic note, or, or a, the chance that there's a there's a brighter future in Hollywood for for everyone who loves oh, great is. entertainment. So, do you think that that within a couple of years that maybe cancel culture will be seriously in decline, that Hollywood will start to tell the stories they once did or, or do so without the fear that they're offending the wrong group. I mean, wh- wh- and if you are optimistic, okay, I, why, what, what sort of, I, I, I can answer that. Yeah. And, and the answer is, is no. Cancel culture <laughs> and Hollywood will not end. I thought you were giving me some optimism here. Lou, you're, you're, no, you're no, no, I, I, I am. <laughs> Hollywood is dead. They've committed seppuku. For the reasons we've discussed, uh-huh. there, there's no helping them. Just like there's no helping ESPN or any of those places, you know, there, there's no helping them. They, they've, they're, they're, they're boiling in their own oil. But, uh, you know, the, the thing about something, someplace like the Daily Wire and Dallas, the, diff- the difficult thing is that Hollywood can make nine woke bombs in a row. And okay, we need some money. Spider-Man six, you yeah, know, boom, yeah. right? There it is. Batman four, boom. They make their money back, then they make ten more woke. So they won't die. They'll just live in that Disney-esque fantasy world of, you know, stupid movies, comic book movies, and you know, good or bad, whatever. Mm-hmm. But they have that. They have limitless money as long as they can churn that stuff out. Somebody like Dallas, for instance, he's got to pick right. Every time, right? Yeah, because there's there there's no backup money. He's got to make money on every, you know, Daily Wire and those guys. They have to make money on every production. So them them being the only game is in town is 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 hard. But eventually there'll be more like them. I mean, and and even even Dallas will tell you, yeah, I I wish I wasn't alone because the pressure would be less, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Hollywood itself, the way they've, you know, the Academy Awards, you you covered better than anybody, man. I mean, it's it they there's they they can't they can't get out of that spiral. There, there's just no way. Nobody can say, uh, I'm going to make this movie no matter what. I, I don't see anybody saying that. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think, you know, the Daily Wire is doing great stuff. I'm a contributor there, but I would say it whether I was or wasn't. But I think we need more Daily Wires. I, I think it, it can't be just the that, Dallas that Sunday. Everybody so. wants that, including yeah. the Daily Wire. Yeah. But I, and I think that once I mean, that happens, though, that will wake up Hollywood to a certain degree. And they may at some point realize that they've been doing something wrong. And then, hey, these upstarts, why are they getting all the attention? Well, why are they getting well, Christian, all the acclaim? It, it, it's, it's, it's like Roseanne Barr. You mm-hmm. can't give them an opening. I guarantee that Jesse Smollett was gonna is gonna be gainfully employed in Hollywood well before Roseanne Barr ever gets a gig again. So. No, I, no, no, no question. Yeah, it, it's funny. While we're talking, right before right before we we got together, I just got a note from a producer named uh, Ken Gord. In the he did two shows that I remember from the nineties. Uh, do you remember? There was one called Tropic. He did the remember that that's when there was all those syndicated shows like Xena. Oh, yeah. Hercules and Baywatch and Pacific Blue. Mm-hmm. Do you remember those? Oh yeah. Anyway, I just got a note saying that they they lo- he loved the script by mine, and uh, you know we're looking into making it. So excellent. Well, I hope we get so, a chance to talk again about different projects, maybe even a Paper Tigers movie with the Daily Wire. That's uh, that'd be great. That's where my fingers are crossed. But Lou, thank you for joining right on Hollywood. Oh no, thank you yeah. for thank you for inviting me. No it's, problem. It's a, it's a pleasure. <laughs> we can and follow. I'm, I'm sorry, I was a little slow on the, the on the nice niceness about Hollywood questions. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, please follow Lou on Twitter at Sandbagger DC, and you can pick up his books, The Christmas Spirit and Paper Tigers, before it comes to. And if you need more great content from Lou, check out his columns at the American Spectator. I think it's some of your it's some of the best stuff that's out there right now. I love it. You uh, you throw some sharp elbows, but they're always thoughtful and interesting, and you kind of always back up your arguments as well, which I appreciate. So, Lou, all the best, and we will check in again. Thanks, Chris. A lot of celebrities these days make their politics part of their public persona. I think Leonardo DiCaprio might be the ultimate example, but Mark Ruffalo comes to mind. Scarlett Johansson often does the same, but not John Andrasik. He's the Grammy nominee who many know as Five for Fighting. What a cool name. But he sticks to the basics. Great melodies, he's got the killer falsetto, and songs that speak to our better angels. And I think there's no better example than Superman, It's Not Easy, his first super hit. Or you can think about 100 Years, another great song from John. He's got a lot of tracks that connect to the human condition. But these days, he's been turning his talents in a different direction, toward the world stage. A few months back, he wrote a song called Blood on My Hands. It's an amazing, powerful attack on our absolutely disastrous Afghanistan pullout and the consequences that resulted. Just devastating. But more recently, John created Can One Man Save the World? A look at President Zelensky in Ukraine and what his courage means to his people and the world itself. Who is this comedian? His audience more mass than men. The Superman Ukrainian, I don't know. Great grandson of the Holocaust, an Eastern heart the West has lost. Nail or carry up his cross, I don't know. But he's got everyone thinking. Yeah, he's got all of us thinking. Can one man save the world in a thousand years? Will they say your name? One man save the world Will you take my hand Will you help me stand Still in the end Can one man save the world One of the many things I like about John is that he knows people view protest songs with a lot of skepticism these days. They are sick of actors and celebrities and singers and performers just pushing their politics right in our face. And I think he knows that, but he wrote these songs anyway. He just had to write them, and he wanted to release them to share them with the world. And the fact that they've struck a powerful chord so quickly means his instincts were right. But that self-awareness, which is often missing in modern artists, and I I think I'm, I'm stating the case lightly, is one of the many qualities that sets John apart. Now, if you want some good news, Five for Fighting has not one but two tours coming this summer. So I was glad to snag him, have a conversation before he... Officially hits the road again. 
It's been a while. We've had a pandemic. He's itching to get out there, and if you're a fan of his music, you're going to want to see him. Here's the thoughtful and very talented John Andrasik. John, thanks for joining the show. There's a lot to talk about, but I want to go back to your early days as a musician. I'm sure at some point you thought, gosh, I'd love to make a, a career out of this. It's so hard. There are so many challenges, so many other people trying to do the same thing. But when you look back, was there a moment, uh, uh, maybe a talk with a mentor or like a, a green light you got from the industry that you thought, this is going to happen. This is I'm going to be able to do this professionally because I, I, I think even the most talented people you know, may not get that chance or maybe struggle to get that chance. What, what, what do you recall from that point of your career? Well, great to talk to you, uh, Christian. Uh, boy, I, I still keep waiting for the whole house of cards to collapse <laughs> as far as the music business. You know, uh, I was very fortunate. You know, my mom was a piano teacher. She started me very young at the piano. So I got the fundamentals, uh, but she was wise. When I was 13, 14, wanted to go hang out, ride my skateboard, not practice. She let me quit. Um, and I had the choice to play or not. And I just had a passion for writing songs uh, since I was 13, 14 years old. And whether it was the Beatles songbook that was like a phone book or Burt Backrack or Godspell or um, Bread, go down the list. I loved kind of playing those songs and eventually started writing those songs. And I was lucky to know my passion at a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, the reality is, is if you're in the arts, there's no guarantee uh it's a subjective medium and and i was uh i was passed on you know you've heard the story a million times in this business i was passed on by everybody you're a good singer not a good enough songwriter you're a good enough songwriter not a good enough singer and um and so i struggled and uh even to my late uh, 20s uh i was still going at it i was fortunate to have a job at the family business where i could make a living and still pursue my dream um, and I had a few people that supported me. I, I, I had a very, very uh, important publisher. Uh, if you want to talk about a moment, um, mm -hmm. I had a, a publisher, a woman named Carla Berkowitz, who signed me to EMI Publishing um, in my kind of mid-20s and got me a record deal on EMI Records, and I made a record for EMI. And it was kind of the dream, the president of the label, uh, produced it. His name was David Segerson. <clears throat> he had produced uh, Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. So he knew songwriters, he knew piano players. And uh, it was all great till the phone call came and said, EMI shutting down oh. the week my first single went out. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. So I thought that was the last straw, to be honest with you. Um, and I'd kind of, I kind of figured, look, I gotta, I gotta get a, you know, I gotta get a real job, pay the rent, you know, give this thing up but this Carla Berkowitz kept sending out my demos to to other companies um un unbeknownst to me and got a little deal for me with uh, a small label called Aware Records and I said you know just put out my demos so I have you know something to show my grandkids you know 50 years <laughs> from now saying oh yeah grandpa used to try to <laughs> pretend to be a songwriter and uh that led to making a small record for them that they're affiliated with Columbia records. Um, and even then I, Columbia didn't even know I was on their label. And, and we put a song out called easy tonight. And uh, it was an, it was a triple a hit number one, triple a song. Triple um, a radio is kind of the songwriter radio that doesn't sell records, but, um, but they gave me one more shot. They said, all right, we'll give you one more song. And there was a song I had called Superman that, you know, people tended to react to, it was a little different than what was on the radio. And I said, well, if I'm going down in flames, uh, I'm going to pick this song and, and, uh, and radio, uh, didn't want to play it. Uh, <laughs> and kind of, it got, it got on the radio a little bit, but then I got a weird call one day saying Superman is number one in the Philippines. <laughs> and if, if you wanted a moment of like, Oh, maybe oh. this will work. Uh, that might've been one. That was and, a sign. uh, yeah and and eventually it became you know a big song around the world and little caveat that carla berkowitz who uh who believed in me and, and rode the world coaster with me is now my wife and we'll have our 25th anniversary uh in a few months i need i need a, a biopic of your life i just just to say, <laughs> i think i had read that i may have forgotten it but gosh that's a that's a great story uh, yeah you know when you have a hit 
and you break through, and it's that moment. And yet, we all watched VH1 growing up, the sort of the one-hit wonders. Obviously, your career quickly discarded that notion, and, and it's been the opposite of what you do. But is there that fear that even when you, you reach the top, you get the song, it, it, it happens, they go, oh my gosh, uh, you know, what, what if it doesn't happen again? I mean, y- you have the family business, maybe that, that sort of acumen helped you, and obviously the talent is there. But did, did, did those fears ever kind of come up where you thought maybe, I, you know, this was my one shot? Does, that, does it cross your mind, or do you, you have to kind of bury that and just keep kind of charging on? Of course, you're consumed by it, you know, <laughs> um, especially with Superman. You know, how do you follow Superman? It became one of the songs for 9-11. Mm-hmm. It became something more than a hit song. Um, and you're right. You, you know, the, the tendency, and I did notice this actually as, as kind of my, my young career, the tendency of when you have your first hit song is you try to regurgitate the song. And that's why many times it doesn't work. Um, my joke is, you know, we saw Superman 2, Superman 3, and we don't want to revisit those movies. Well, mm-hmm. we did, I didn't want to write Superman 2 um, and just kind of have it be a, you know, a B-plus Superman. So how do you write a song that, that, that's that guy yeah, yeah. but also could stand alone? Um, and it took two years. I almost got dropped from my record company. People were freaking out. The monkey was on the back. I'd re- I wrote hundreds of songs. But I also knew, you know, the other thing for a new songwriter um, the, 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 the fear or the, the reality is sometimes you think you're, you know, you think you're Joni Mitchell, you know, oh, I have a hit, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a Bob Dylan, I'm a genius, nothing can go wrong. So you just write a record assuming you have all these hits and you put it out and you don't. I, I knew um, after we made the follow-up record to, to uh, so America Town, which has Superman mm-hmm. called The Battle for Everything, I knew when we were done, we had a pretty cool record, but we did not have the song to follow Superman. So that maturity kind of allowed me to go back to the drawing board. I went back to my producer, Greg Wattenberg, who, who did Superman with me. And uh, we waited a couple years. Um, but then I think once I wrote 100 Years, we had a sense that, you know, this is a song that it's not Superman, but it's the same guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could exist in a world where Superman never did. And, and very fortunate for me, um, the song, you know, frankly, I think probably has more reach than Superman now, but you're right. Success can bring incredible challenges and pressures that you could never imagine. You know, you, you live your dream, you, you kind of have a song on the radio and people are singing it back to you. And then you're like, oh my God, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so here we go. You know, what's interesting though, John, I feel like and maybe you had a maturity that was beyond most 20 year olds, but if all of this had happened at 20, not in your late twenties, maybe you wouldn't have the maturity to take the steps that you took to kind of understand the bigger picture and not rush into a, a, like you said, like a clone of Superman. Maybe the fact that it happened a little bit later was, was, was your secret sauce to, to, to having the maturity and the talent to kind of work it together. It's, I don't know, it just kind of crossed my mind as you were, as you're sharing that story. No, you're very astute. And I speak about that in a way I was very fortunate to have success late because um, I understood that it wasn't just about me. You know, when you're 19, 20, 21, you have success. You know, what's the, what's the old motto? You see this in Hollywood all the time. Your, you know, your maturity as a human being stops when you become famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, I understood that it, it, there were many people beyond myself that were critical in my success, and there were, and I could name, you know, there's five or six that without them, I never even get a shot. So I understood that it wasn't all about me and I was able to really develop powerful relationships with um, radio programmers and, and VH1. You mentioned them, uh, a good friend of mine ran VH1, um, knowing that um, you know, success is fleeting in this business. And, that, and I tell kids all the time, you, know, you need to have the same kind of um, demeanor and humility when you have a number one song in the country as you do when you're walking into that radio station for the first time begging them to play your record. And that's hard to do yeah, yeah, in this entertainment yeah. world when you know all of a sudden the limo's showing up and the people are calling for the parties and the people want to take your picture. But uh, I think being older and also having, you know, you mentioned the family business where I worked through my whole career where, you know, when you run a manufacturing business and it's down and dirty and you're building stuff and it's, it's sweaty and uh, you, you smell the, the sparks, uh, you walk into there, it's, it grounds you very quickly. And I, I think having the family business has been really great to to keep me at least one foot in the real world and 
remind me how you know fleeting and shallow Hollywood is, and yeah. I don't need to tell that to you because it's you know it's your life's work. <laughs> you know more than most. <laughs> I wrote the book on it. Well, you know, you did. <laughs> when, you, when you look at so the years since then, you diversified. You 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 know performance string quartets. Your music is on movies and TV shows, and now you're writing protest songs. And I it it doesn't sound like that was your goal your mission at the time but now it's happening i'm gonna assume that recent events sort of forced your hand or had you thought of it prior to the last year or so no you're right i've never you know i've always had kind of a centrist philosophy i've kind of been a political orphan i never really wore it on my sleeve though if you look at my songs you can see it in there you know many songs are kind of troop related recognizing our troops recognizing freedom uh, a song called World that asks, what kind of world do you want? So, you know, I've been kind of asking these questions, but, you know, I, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, I, I really disdain celebrity posers mm-hmm. who like to get on their soapbox and lecture us about politics. I, I, I never wanted to be that guy. I still don't want to be that guy. But as you said, um, you know, I haven't really put out a song for real in, geez, five, six years. I've dabbled. There's been some movie songs. But uh, the... Uh, the evacuation from Afghanistan to me was so uh, incredibly um, angering Mm -hmm. and filled with shame. And I was so disturbed, um, like so many, I did what I used to do when I sat down to write songs 30 years ago. It was a cathartic experience. It wasn't let me write a song to put out. It was like, I have to write this to get through the day. I just have to bang on the piano. And I I had no intention of writing blood on my hands. uh, had no intention of putting it out, um, but it came very quickly. And then, you know, I recorded it one day and I played it for my wife and, and uh, a couple people and everyone said, don't put it out. You know, you'll, you'll end your career. Mm. Um, especially my daughter who goes to a very liberal school. I was worried about her, you know, getting some backlash and I played it for her. And to her credit, she said, daddy, if People not don't want to be my friend or give me a good grade because you're out there telling the truth with the song. I, I don't want to be their friends. And I also thought about Andrew Breitbart, our old buddy. Um, uh, you know how he would you know take a stand and and do the right thing. And and finally, uh, I'd written a song, geez, 25 years ago called "The Last Great American," and it was about John McCain and him in Vietnam. You know, staying in a prison camp letting people go before him and that kind of heroism and i thought you know after my daughter said go for it i thought you know if john mccain can do that yeah <laughs> i could put out a song and get a few mean tweets um <laughs> That's right. so um so yeah so I, I put out blood on my hands um never expecting to see the reaction it did but it was it was kind of what protest song should be and i don't even call it a protest song i call it a moral song because as we said, I would have written the same song if Donald Trump were president. Mm-hmm. Really, not it's not political to me. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just a, a scream about this horrible thing we did, abandoning our citizens and allies. That here we are, eight months later, still in the middle of it. I, I have a call later with one of these evac groups. But yeah, it was, it wasn't intentional. It was a burst, and maybe that's the way it should be. And uh, kind of same with the Zelensky song. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You the you know, blood in my hands has had an impact it's reached people you've talked about so many veterans coming up to you you mentioned other impacts of it and you think it's just a song but then it wasn't just a song uh talk about can one man change the world and 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 what you're hoping from that because that's a much newer track yeah no i mean as you just said so many um interesting happens with blood on my hands uh i'm now embedded with these evac groups i'm working on policy uh, with Joni Ernst uh, on the Hill. Um, it, it has become a kind of cathartic uh, tune and mantra for our Afghan veterans. We're having an Afghan, uh, a concert to honor Afghan veterans this summer. Um, all, of, all of that from this one song I never could have imagined. So it might've given me a little, um, a little push to, to realize, well, you know what, maybe, maybe there is some significance in your songwriting and it can actually make a difference. You know, the funny thing with blood in my hands, it never got one spin on the radio, <laughs> but it got more traction than per- probably any one of my songs except Superman hundred years. So it kind of redefined my, um, my thought process of songwriting. And then again, with Zelensky, um, 
in Ukraine. Again, I had no intention of writing a song. Frankly, I think we talked about this when I talked to you about Blood <laughs> on My Hands. I said, look, I'm not going to be the political song of the week guy. I'm not going to put one out every week. I'm not going to try to milk that cow. Um, that's not me. Uh, there's people that do that, and that's great. Um, but that's not me. But again, I think Zelensky, like Afghanistan, you know, in Ukraine, it's a tentpole moment in our history. And uh, really, I think, critical to our country. You know, two events within a year that I think we haven't seen in a generation. You know, Afghanistan really questioned who are we as a nation? What is our moral soul? Does our promise matter? And I think we're, we, we, the, the, the consequences will, will, will roll out for decades from that. And I think Ukraine as well. What, if, do we allow Putin to devour Ukraine? Um, it's certainly more complicated than Afghanistan. I understand that uh, with Putin having nukes. But I also think how America reacts uh, and how the world reacts to Ukraine um, is going to have consequences for generations. And to watch this guy, Zelensky, who we offered a plane ticket to, what's the first action of the United States when Putin invades Ukraine? Oh, here's a plane ticket, Zelensky. <laughs> what does that tell you about us? Yeah. And when he said, when he said, you know, keep your plane ticket, give me some ammo, I think we all were like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, because we're, we're used to in the West, a bunch of uh, peasers, right? You know, Crimea, shrug our shoulders, Syria, line in the sand, um, even Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, you know, when, when, the, when China basically moved into Hong Kong, the world kind of shrugged their shoulders and, and Afghanistan, right? Um, so all of a sudden we have this guy kind of doing the Reagan Churchill thing, willing to die with his, his wife and his children for his for his country and the whole Ukrainian people kind of picking up that, that, um, that courage, that spine and, you know, shocking the world. And, and I asked myself, I'm like, look, you know, one man certainly can't save the world on his own, but can he drag the rest of us to the right side of history? And I think, I think he, to a sense has, we don't know how that's going to play out, but remember Christian early, in the uh, invasion, I think everybody, you know, everybody, including our president and administration, were planning on how do we manage the fall of Russia? Mm -hmm. I mean, sorry, manage the fall of Ukraine. Um, uh, and they didn't understand. And I think they still don't know what to do <laughs> because <laughs> this guy's standing up to them. And, and so he has, you know, you see NATO stronger than ever. You see Germany talking about cutting off, you know, the Russian oil supply just today. Uh, I saw that uh, with all the atrocities, there's a movement to remove Russia from UN Security Council. Um, all these things that are really because one dude stood up yeah. and said, I'm going to fight for freedom, all this stuff we say we stand for. So that's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> but that led me to, again, quickly in a day or two, just you know, spit out, can one man save the world? Yeah. And also you know, to see it also resonate in the culture, too. Um, you know, has been uh, satisfying. You mentioned this before that a lot of times you you dismiss or we kind of collectively dismiss uh, artists who get in a soapbox and you know preach from the, yeah. the pulpit, and yet you're doing a version of that. You kind of you kind of admit that that exists, and you're doing it now. How do you avoid sort of the the, the pitfalls of some of your fellow artists who maybe? Don't do it well, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, it's clearly on your mind. You brought up the topic. How do you kind of navigate that while maintaining your integrity? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if you can. I mean, I, you know, the difference, I think it's, if you use your art to make a statement, I think that's different than just going on TV and yelling at the world and saying how bad they are. Mm -hmm. A lot of these celebrities, um, you know, they're not using, they're not making a movie to make their point. They're lecturing us. Right, right. They're standing on a soapbox. I have no intention of doing that. I'm happy to come on people's shows, and mm -hmm. if they want to talk about the song, give my two cents, fully understanding that I don't know everything. Um, you know, certainly with Afghanistan, uh, I think it was pretty obvious to all of us uh, the the moral failing. But but when it comes to you know when it comes to things like like Ukraine, I understand that it's it's it's. Uh, it's a gray area. Look, I understand why some on the right are very nervous. Uh, look, Putin has nukes. Um, it's, it's, I, I try to be willing to listen as much to talk um, and to understand what I don't know. Um, 
but you're right. It's like, you know, we're talking about it and a lot of people are, why should we listen to you? Mm. And, and, and I think the answer is you really shouldn't, <laughs> uh, but maybe this, maybe this song maybe will this make song you will. think about something yeah. and uh, make you ask some questions of your own or, you know, that to me, I don't write songs to, to, to lecture. Um, I saw how Superman provided solace to many after 9-11. And to me, that's, to me, the, the, the best thing that's happened with blood in my hands is it's had a similar thing, a similar response with our veterans. It's, you know, music can make, you know, music has a, such a higher dimension. And so many on the right, especially our politicians, don't understand that one song can be more powerful than a thousand speeches. Yeah. yeah. So you put the song out there and uh, people make it their own. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people ignore it. But with blood in my hands, the fact that it provided solace to, to our Afghan vets, that's to me why I need to write these songs. Not yep. to really change minds. Um, and Zelensky. There should be a thousand songs about Zelensky. There should be a live aid for Ukraine. There should be a Sun City for Afghanistan. I just don't understand where all these, you know, artists who like to tell us how, how much they care about human rights um, and lecture us and make their Super Bowl commercials have gone AWOL. It's really disturbing to me. Um, I do think if it was the 60s and 70s, there would be hundreds of songs about, you know, Zelensky and freedom and and uh, and there'll be songs about the people we left behind in Afghanistan, uh, but that's not the world we live in, yeah. and uh, it's unfortunate. I'm assuming that you're not, uh, you know, feeling calls from CNN and MSNBC and and different uh, media outlets <laughs> well, to talk about all this information. Well, it's funny actually. It's funny you said that because actually CNN had me uh, as soon as uh, "Can One Man Save the World" came out. Um, now I think that issue is way more. Um, non-political right, than right. Afghanistan. Look, look, here's, look, we know this. Look, you're in Hollywood. If Trump was president, I would have written Blood in My Hands. Um, I would have been on The View. I'd have been the new, uh, I would have taken, you know, the, the fifth seat on The View. They would have had me, <laughs> CNN would have hired me to be a reporter. Uh, MSNBC would be mm -hmm. playing my songs during the bumper music. And frankly, many on the right would probably ignore me. Um, not all of them, because I think I think a lot of them do have some integrity and understand Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But come out, come one man save the world. I think it's I think it's something that we all agree. Yep. Like not all of us, but most of us agree. Like, look, you need to fight against Putin. He's a bad guy. It's good against evil. We you know we can argue should we send MIGs? Should there be a nice no fly zone? But so I think you know the music press has embraced can one man save the world a lot more. Gotcha. Um, just because the nature of the song, and frankly, it's not attacking the administration. So, so yeah, it was it was actually very odd to go <laughs> from uh, Monday being on Fox and Friends and Tuesday being on CNN. There but, you go. Uh, but that's the way it should be, right? That's right. Well, <laughs> well, you know, speaking of range, you've got some tours coming up this uh, late spring and summer. Uh, I wonder if you can give us a little tease. You've got one with a string quartet. One seems like a more conventional rock style show. But you, you, before we let you go, just just fill us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. It's just great to get back on the road, you know, with this pandemic. I think so many of us uh, realized those little things we took for granted were the big things and certainly miss playing music, sharing music with people, being with my my colleagues, my musicians. So uh, we're going to go out uh, in May, starting May 6th in Fort Smith, Arkansas, with my string quartet, some of the greatest string players in the world. And we're going to do a few weeks through the Midwest, down into Florida, Georgia, uh, up into Indiana. We'll be in, in Nashville doing the string quartet thing. And then, Christian, I never thought I'd say it, but I'm going back in the bus. <laughs> back in the bus uh, this summer. Haven't played a rock tour in 10 years. But again, I think, I think we've kind of all have new perspective now. And, and I'm really excited to take the rock band out and uh, – we have a great band uh, with us, the Verve Pipe. You right, might remember their song, The Freshman, that was a oh, big gosh, hit yeah. song when when uh, Superman was a hit song. So we're going back to the future. We'll be out, you know, <laughs> six weeks um, all through the Midwest, the South. We'll be in Oregon for some festivals. So we'll be near everybody uh, playing these songs. And, and I can't wait. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a rebirth for Fight for Fighting. Excellent. Well, uh, John, thank you for joining right on Hollywood. Of course, you can find Fire for Hiding in all the places he just mentioned with that string quartet first, starting May 6th, then looking for that 16-city uh, tour starting July 22nd. Got to wait a little longer for that one, but it's coming soon with the Verb Pipe. 
If you have any questions about anything here, just go to 5forfighting.com for all the details. John, keep singing, keep speaking out. I love your voice and I love your passion. And uh, you're right. If people can really go into harm's way, we can all do a little bit. We can write a song. We can share a song. We could speak out. That's the least we can do, but I think it's something really important. And on that note, I love your book, buddy. Oh, so thank thanks you. For, uh, thanks for doing what you're doing and uh, look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. In case you didn't know, my website covers Hollywood from the right seven days a week. One more day and you'd have a Beatles song. It's hollywoodintoto.com and you'll find news, commentary, reviews, and so much more. Just not bad jokes like I tell here. Now, if you enjoyed this show, then hit Hollywood and Toto should be up your alley. Do people even use that phrase anymore? <laughs> I'm getting old. Either way, thank you for listening. Be kind to one another. And remember, that virtue signaling friend on Facebook might just need an off-screen hug. Why don't you give it a try? See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Thank you.